What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we are talking with musician, singer-songwriter Tim Booth of the band James. James has been an outstanding indie rock band for almost 40 years, with songs like Come Home, Sit Down, and of course, my personal favorite, Laid. And James has a new album out called All the Colors of You. Now, one of the main topics Tim and I talk about is existential angst, or fear of death. And this fear can be a powerful force in people's lives, to the point where it's overwhelming. In the worst cases, it can cause us to worry constantly, panic, and even fall into depression as we struggle with the concept of death. Now, there are generally three ways that we can cope with existential angst. The first is that we give into our fears and try to control various aspects of our life in the hope of preventing death. So maybe we avoid riding in cars, on planes, or even in some cases leaving the house. Anything we can do to control our fears. Another way of handling our existential angst is to pretend that we don't care, the hope I die before I get old mentality. So we are reckless, perhaps abusing drugs and alcohol, and even doing whatever we want to our body and mind in the hopes that we just ignore our fear of death. Neither of these ways of coping are generally very adaptive because we either have to compromise our happiness by being too controlling or risk our health and well-being by being too carefree. And we're not building a life that would naturally take our attention away from death. In these models, we are avoiding rather than engaging in our lives and not generally building any sense of fulfillment and growth. Then there is a third way to cope with existential angst, which is actually the focus of the Hardcore Humanism and Therapy Coaching Program. And that is to recognize and accept that, yes, we are going to die, but the best way of managing fear of death is to focus on, embrace, and pursue our purpose in life. By giving our attention to what feels meaningful to us, we feel connected to ourselves and the world around us. This purpose-driven approach grounds us in building our lives with goals we hope to achieve, doing the things we enjoy, and connecting with the people we love. And this naturally draws us into focusing on our life rather than simply on death. And as we grow and become the person we want to be, we don't fear death because we know we are making the most of our life. Now, Tim talks about this issue in a couple of ways. First, he talks about managing existential angst in terms of pursuing his music. And one of the things Tim describes is the importance of improvisation and getting into a state of flow as he and his band create new music and perform. Tim also discusses how he has spent a great deal of his life exploring different methods of coping with feelings like anxiety or depression that may emerge from existential angst. Tim shares his experiences using therapy, meditation, dance, and psychedelic drugs under the guidance of a shaman as ways of exploring his emotions and beliefs in his ongoing process of evolving and growing. So let's hear what Tim has to say. Let's get right into the concept of existential angst, which is to a degree fear of death, which is what do we do with that fear? And in your new album, you just jump right into it in the first line with we're all going to die. So let's start there. We're all going to die. Yeah, I was very happy that that was the opening line. Um, you know, my sister tells me that, oh, this, this is the COVID anthem because everyone's been sitting locked down in their homes in terror of death or long COVID. I, I, I had a great experience six years ago in that my mother died in my arms and it was beautiful 
And it was clearly a birth. And it left me quite high for months because uh, I'd never really got that connection between birth and death so graphically. And even though I had died when I was 21, uh, I stopped breathing in hospital. I had this inherited liver disease. And uh, yeah, I died of it and then was revived. And that was beautiful. The, the dying was peaceful and beautiful in my experience. But when my mother died in my arms, it was like, oh, my God, it's a birth. It's so obviously a birth. And a great deal of my fear of death has dissipated. Uh, I have a fear of pain and I have a fear of decline and I have a fear of my dad had Parkinson's, of, of anything like that, but not actually dying. And I, it's been coming up for me quite a lot, um, actually, in some therapeutic sessions using some psychedelics um, um, and working with indigenous shamans in in, Amer in southern Central America. Death seems to come quite strongly into therapeutic work with psychedelics. <laughs> you, you, you end up feeling like you die to something and it feels like a real death at the time. So it's almost like you're practicing. I think that on a very basic level, when people fear death, one of the things that you described is they fear pain, they fear sickness. And, and that I think is for most people fairly universal. The idea though, that death itself is not to be feared because you see it as a birth is, is not necessarily shared by everyone, but it sounds like it's of great comfort. And so I'm just kind of curious how you develop that concept and how that experience has manifested for you. It wasn't a concept. It was seeing something and then your mind going, of course, deducing what it was witnessing and it being the most logical answer to what I was seeing. It's so tricky. It's like, you know, I, I don't really want to get into it. I mean, obviously, it's, it, I, I get from the position that anyone else is taking. It's, it's a philosophical concept and I have chosen to believe in it, of course. I think everything, we choose everything that we believe in uh, and that should be owned. But I didn't expect that to be my conclusion. And I've done a lot of different work. Um, I've done past life regression work uh, at various times in my 20s and 30s. I've done a lot of different work. in I've done years and years of meditation that has shown me many different things. So yes, I probably had it teed up in my consciousness to see it like that, but it just felt like that. One of the most amazing things, you know, is witnessing people close to death and how free they can be. You know, grief is really for the people left behind. It's not for the ones who go very often. Sometimes it is, but not as often. My father-in-law, who died of COVID a year ago, literally this week, um, he died in the first wave. And we were lucky enough to have a FaceTime conversation with him that a nurse held the phone he was on a ventilator in a ward and he could talk to us he was going to come off the ventilator his blood levels weren't changing and i believe that hospital were having trouble with oxygen and other people needed it he'd volunteered to come off uh, and uh, so the nurse was translating for him talking to, with the ventilator down his throat and there was an amazing moment where he, of course, had asked if it was possible for a friend to come into 
to the ward to say goodbye. And Kate said, you know, so sorry, you're in a COVID ward, you can't. This is the real grief, I think, of COVID is that people haven't been able to say their goodbyes um, in person. And, and she said, you know, I know you're afraid, Dad. And he waved his finger at the camera. And the nurse leant in close and he said, I'm not afraid. And he really wasn't afraid. He came off the ventilator an hour later, had a peach Bellini and died within an hour and a half. And um, that was his final request. And, you know, I had a similar experience where my father had a stroke and I'd been meditating for five days and nights uh, in a group I was in in my 20s. And I was high as a kite and I came out and was like my my dad was in hospital and had had a stroke and may die at any moment. And my whole family had gathered, my sister flown in from Germany, my brother from Africa, my other sister from Portugal. And we're all standing around a semicircle. He's unconscious with my mum. They're all weeping and I'm not weeping. I'm just, I'm a bit off my head uh, on too long meditates. <laughs> um, and he, I remember he, like, you saw his consciousness come into his eyes. He opened his eyes and he looked around us one by one at the half moon around his bed. And he saw, you know, my mother weeping, my sister weeping, my other sister weeping, my brother weeping. And he's like a little child. His eyes are like a little child looking out. I would probably say his soul is looking out with not much attachment to a personality at that point. And he sees me and I'm just standing there beaming at him. And he looks at me for a while and he goes, you're beautiful. And then closes his eyes again and goes back in. It was amazing to see my dad so unafraid of death um, to witness that and to see him so unencumbered by personality at that point. Um, when, when I died, it was like all that stuff dropped away and you're left in a state of, oh, this is really simple. This is so much simpler than we make life. Life is such a hard work. It can be such a baggage, really, to be who we are with all that history and all that weight of expectations and thinking and decision-making. <laughs> it can be really tough. It's so interesting the way that you're talking about it, distinguishing between a concept and something that almost just kind of an understanding that you came to. And it almost has like a deeper sense than just, again, a concept or a thought. It reminds me of when some people talk about songwriting and they say, you don't write a song, you discover a song and you kind of know when you've come upon it. And that song is that piece of the truth, if you will. Which is a, a cliche, but it's a cliche because I think so many musicians experience it exactly as that. We, we improvise, four of us in the band James, we improvise together. We have nothing planned beforehand. No, I have no agenda of what I'm going to write about. Uh, we set a drum machine just so we can have something to edit to that keeps time. And we jam six hours usually five, six hours a day when we do those sessions. And that's a joy. We're making a racket, we're journeying, we're listening to each other. And on the good days, we get into a real flow state where we're, we're so listening that you can hear a pin drop in the room 
and we we don't know what we're doing and we record it all and then we go back and pick the bits to work on our songs and the lyrics some of them come in those jams i come up with phonetic sounds or words or lines and they usually dictate to me the rest of the song and nearly all of my best lyrics i wake up four three four in the morning from a dream and i've got lyrics and i start to write them down staying as close to the sleep state as i possibly can and because i find that that to me suggests i'm closer to my unconscious and my unconscious writes my best lyrics i don't i, I you know i'm i'm not i'm okay i'm quite a good lyricist but i'm not that good and the unconscious writes lyrics that i go wow where did that come from that's amazing <laughs> And and it writes lyrics that I often look at and go, well, I don't know what the hell that means, but maybe it will become clearer later. And it always does. Usually just on release of the song, the lyric becomes much clearer to me what I was writing about. Uh, this can work in quite a woo-woo way. Uh, the, the, the most woo-woo it ever happened was we jammed a song in 20 minutes, which is unusual. I got half the lyric. And then we did another jam and I, I jammed the other half of the lyric. So it was really effortless. And I put the lyric together and it was about a man who was tired of his life, who went off into the hills. And I saw this in the Lake District and lay down in the snow to die. And I thought, oh, that's a heavy lyric. What, what the hell are you writing that for? I hope that doesn't come true. I hope that's not about me. Because um, some of them come true about me and some of them around other friends and people. So I was a bit nervous about the lyric. I, I, often why I won't write about any, any violence in songs um, because it, it's come true in the past and I therefore decided that may be the place where I censor my muse. Um, and we came to within two weeks of releasing that song and the person I was living with who was an Alexander Technique uh, therapist her mentor walked off into the Lake District in the snows and lay down and died, totally by choice, very consciously. And they played that song at his funeral a week before it was released. And his wife rang me up and said, how did you know my husband? Because I'd written lyrics in there that were very precisely pertinent to his life. So there's a, there's a kind of a, when you're really in tune with a lyric, these things happen. Strangely to me, you know, we named an album Whiplash and within three gigs, I'd given myself Whiplash on stage and was disabled for two and a half years. I couldn't carry a shopping bag, was in agony. Um, so we, we, the next album we called Millionaires, um, but that didn't work, surprisingly. It, it's like the lyrics come, for me, they have a resonance and an, uh, a meaning that it's much bigger than me, much bigger than my understanding. And I just, I'm just the lucky mouthpiece. And it's a joy. It's such a joy when you write something that you just sit in there going, wow, how did that happen? Um, and you know it's got potency and poignancy and people sing it back to you and tell you how much it means in their life. And I just feel so lucky and blessed to have this job <laughs> for 40 years and to be able to be made, make a living from it. Yeah, and it's interesting because you had a, a quote that I found very fascinating, <clears throat> which is that rock dies when it becomes theater. And we talked a little bit 
beforehand about this, the concept of existential angst and how people deal with it. And it seems to be three ways. It's one way people get very fearful and they think that if they hide from the world that they it'll somehow prevent them from dying. There's the hope I die before I get old. I'm just going to throw myself into the abyss and somehow I won't be afraid. And then there's a third way, which I, I think is often the the most adaptive or healthiest way, which is if you can connect to yourself, if you can connect to your purpose, if you can connect to flow, as you've described, that somehow it feels a little bit more grounded. Somehow death doesn't seem so frightening. And one of the things that you're describing is a process that at least to me sounds very much like that third way. And it sounds wonderful in that way. But once then that you're asked to do it in a more rigid or regimented way, whether it's through a show or or some other kind of uh, maybe more commercial process, it loses a lot of that fundamental meaning to you, I think. Mm. You know, it loses that power. You know, people maybe who are on the outside don't understand, well, what's the difference between that organic flow and jam that you're talking about versus just playing the songs that we all love? And what you're describing is those are different universes for you. Um, Give me one second. I want to write something down because there were almost about four parts to that uh, question. I unfortunately Uh, talk in, uh, (laughs) I talk, I talk sometimes all over the place. Uh, So I want to, first of all, talk about um, your first point about how we respond to death, the existential fear of death. I think my way is to go and meet it really straightforward. I don't think there's any way to avoid it. As far as I know, no, no one seems to have said, Oh, this is the way. And what I witness is that if you don't go to face your shadow, your shadow comes to get you. My grandfather fought in world war one and won a major medal. I think it was one below the Victoria cross And he was out in no man's land for two days with his captain and he dragged his body back to the trenches. And when he was 78, he had a mental breakdown. And the breakdown was all about that PTSD from World War I 55 years earlier. I think I'm a real believer that trauma gets locked into the body. I I teach a method of... uh, trance dance where it's therapeutic dance we get 100 people in the room i dj and talk them through it and we find a way to dance and move whatever's coming up for us whatever rage anger sadness grief and you dance it and you move it and it's amazing what it unlocks in the body so i'm a big believer from empirical evidence of body armor and uh, those concepts of of trauma being locked in the body. And I see that when people get old and their body starts to break down, whatever traumas they've locked in the body, they can no longer hide. They come out. So once I kind of, I worked that out probably in my thirties. So my thing was, well, better to go meet my fuck ups now directly walk towards them, go and try and work out why I'm, full of fear and anxiety or why I'm terrified when I go on stage or, you know, go to meet whatever your fears are, because if you don't, 
when you get older and your body starts to break down, they'll come to meet you. So that's been my my kind of way. And I feel that's what keeps us, I'm going to say young, for want of a better term, because the, the, my fear of aging is habits becoming solidified into addictions, becoming solidified into robotic behavior and a lack of aliveness that can come from that. I've seen people get old in that way, and that scares me. And none of the great artists that I've loved, very, very few of them have managed to maintain their artistic creativity, exploration, sense of wonder, sense of not knowing into old age. It's been really unnerving not seeing many of them make, in my view, great creative works. Nick Cave is a huge exception to that rule. Leonard Cohen as a writer is a huge exception to that rule, although I'd like to have seen him experiment more musically, um, personally. And and so I, it's always for us as a band is how do we keep moving forward? And maybe there's some fear of death in that, that we're looking in the rearview mirror and going, otherwise this thing will catch us. Um, so maybe there's a, a there's a, a self-deception there on my part and paradox but it's for me about keep learning it's like there's there's i love learning new things i love being out of my comfort zone i'm 61 i took up surfing on my 61st birthday and it's like i i want new experiences i don't want it to stop and uh I, I still stage dive. I still go in the audience. It's the most thrilling moment for me to go in the audience and be passed around, really. They always look after me. I say, I'm a Ming vase. Please look after me. And they pass me around gently. So now I'll loop back to your last bit of your third. I think you had so much richness in your question. I'm so sorry to talk so much. Um, no, this is what we're here for. Okay. So the last bit about bands becoming theatre. Um, our concerts, we, we tend to have about 80 songs that we vaguely know. We change the set every night. I'll often write the set two hours before we go on, but sometimes I'll change the set in the middle of the set. It, it will be dependent upon what day of the week it is. You know, people want to hear a different gig on a Friday night in Barcelona than a Monday night where they're like, uh, we just had the weekend and it's the beginning of the week. You know, Friday, it's like they come out to party. You feel the vibration of the energy of a place you're in. You feel the vibration of the band. Maybe something awful's happened to a band member. And so you want to put some really dark, sad songs in there so they can get to express that. Um, maybe something awful's happened to me. You see what's happened on the news. Has there been a shoot in America? You know, has there been a shooting? It's like, and so you choose songs accordingly to express the moment. And you keep, we keep the thing alive that way. That's how we do it. When we get a song like Sit Down, the pressure obviously to play that for us because big song, laid sometimes, we, we rest them. So for a couple of years, we might not play them. Or if we try and find new ways to play them to keep them fresh. But the minute they become like, oh, that sounded like karaoke, we drop them. Um, we have to, um, because the, the gig has to be alive. I realized at a young age, we had a band 
you know, there were a few band talk conversations when we were like in our 20s where we realized that most bands have a type of song and they have a fast version and a slow version and an audience comes to see it. And after 20 minutes, they know what that sound of that band is and they go into automatic pilot. They're no longer listening with the same intensity as they may have listened to that band a year ago. So how do you keep people re-listening? How do you keep people being more in the now? Because that's where the juice of connection is. That's where the juice of excitement is. And so we would have radically different songs within our set that would often blow up the set. We might have almost a death metal song in the middle of just to smash up the pop songs and therefore recontextualize the song that followed. And we would purposely mess around like that with people's heads just to try and make people re reconnect with us uh, rather than go, oh, you know, they're playing their hits or that this is this is the, the happy songs, you know, whatever it is. It's like we we purposely throw in spanners in the works to make people wake up and us wake up. And we play songs we don't know, so it terrifies us. We improvise songs, it terrifies us. Um, and it makes the gigs much more happening, much more alive. And it's so interesting what you're talking about in terms of embracing that shadow embracing that darkness because when i'm working with people one of the things that i find is this what i consider to be an artificial dichotomy is they feel like they have to be kind of really rigid and regimented and and goal-oriented or they have to be kind of free-spirited with no particular agenda and the thing that you're talking about though is what i think is important for the people who want those experiences to hear is that you have put yourself actively in several processes, just, just what, from what we've talked about today, that it's not just, it's not just passively or whatever happens to me. You're actively searching out new experiences. You know, you're actively doing different types of therapy. You're actively doing things like trans dancing. You're actively engaging with the band playing shows songwriting. And I personally think that even if you want a, a serendipity of, you know, kind of a life, it's still something that you have to have a certain active engagement with. I'm kind of curious to see if you feel like that's, that's how you encode it or that's how you approach it. Yes. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we, we sold up in Los Angeles, we've moved to the jungle in Costa Rica uh, right now and we're looking we're floating to see where we're going to live to see what what landscape is going to feed us so we we like to live with a certain sense of not knowing because it keeps it fresh for us um, and even though we have parts of us that desperately want the known and the safe and the comfortable so uh interesting that you're talking about therapeutic tools i i came from a meditation background and because of my liver disease that I had as a kid for 10 years, I'd been a singer in a band who had really never taken drugs and alcohol. You know, once a year, basically, I might do things, but, you know, even alcohol once a year. Um, but it was very rare for me because my, my liver couldn't deal with it. And then in the last five or six years, I discovered psychedelic therapy therapeutic work and 
it's been remarkable. I, I tried therapy before for a couple of years. Uh, and this was so different because you take the indigenous medicines and they bring up what needs to be worked on. You don't have to do any work. It shows you what's coming up for you, whether it's fear or shaking. It might be in the body. It might be some memories. And you work with what comes up from the unconscious. They give you access to the unconscious in a way that I think therapists must dream of um, because it's such raw material and it's so present. And it's remarkable. Uh, work. I've worked with a number of therapists with a number of different uh, uh, chemicals from indigenous mushrooms to ayahuasca to uh, prescribed ketamine sessions. Um, and I'm finding all of these thrillingly liberating tools to get into the unconscious more directly. Because, you know, it's <laughs> it's all right working out what's wrong with us consciously but it doesn't change it unless you can get into the unconscious. And I think to some degree, unfortunately, for most of us, you have to somehow re-experience some of these things in order to get through them. And that can be quite difficult and take a lot of courage and, and really needs a, someone to hold your hand often. So I'm, I'm not in any way advocating um, illicit use of drugs here. I'm talking about either working with indigenous shamans and uh, Central America, South America, which is what I've done because they've been using these things in their cultures for thousands of years and have their ways of working that are quite remarkable uh, or working with a therapist. Um, and you can, you, you know, I'm sure you're up on this. These things are coming to the culture. The European Union is in the final stages of making, uh, using um, psilocybin to treat depression using MDMA to treat PTSD uh, in America. The FDA is about to approve uh, MDMA first, working with soldiers with PTSD because they've got 750,000 troops with PTSD. And I, I know people working on those projects, therapists, uh, friends of mine who are coming back with amazing stories of success rates, 80, over 80% success rates with PTSD that was the worst states of PTSD that they thought were incurable. Um, so this medicine is coming to the culture soon. It was suppressed in the 60s um, through political reasons, often sometimes racial reasons, um, and also because the CIA had their own program going called MK Ultra, which you might know about, um, and they were wanting to experiment with LSD and they didn't want it coming out in the public domain. Um, but the therapists of the 50s and 60s were very excited by all, all the use of LSD therapy and um, psychedelic therapy and ketamine therapy. And then they had to close it all down for 40 years while the moral panic took over. And now it's coming back into the culture due to an organization called MAPS, M-A-P-S, and Rick Doblin, uh, who I heard give a talk last night. So... It, and who I first saw giving a talk in 2004 at Burning Man um, Festival. And this man got up and talked about how he was going to le get legalized the therapeutic use of psychedelics. And I thought, he's mad. There's no way they'll allow that. 
Um, I thought, what a lovely man. You can see he's a beautiful, idealistic man, but he hasn't got hope in hell. And it's Rick Doblin who has virtually single-handedly got the FDA to approve working therapeutically with, with these medicines. Uh, and I, I, I'm very connected to that. And one of the things that you're talking about that I think is so important is that whatever approach we use, we have to feel it in a, in a very different way than we have to understand it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a colleague of mine who developed something called the common sense model of illness. And to me, it's kind of a good explanation as to why preventive health is also is often very different. You know, when we ask someone to do something preventatively, we're asking someone to do something before they feel it. You know, I, I don't want to go to the dentist just to get checked out because there's potentially going to be pain. I don't feel anything here. I don't, I don't have to do anything. I don't feel it. But if you have pain, you're like, well, okay, I'll, I'll go check this out because I, I feel it. I know it's like, it's, it's beyond understanding. You know, you can say to someone all the live long day, you've got a problem with your teeth. You've got a problem with your teeth, but it's when you feel it that you're motivated to do something. And I think that it applies in therapy as well. You know, you could come in and talk to someone and if you don't feel that they understand you, if you don't feel like they, they get what you're talking about in their bones, in their DNA, it's, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work as well. And I think that Whatever the method is, and if for some people, if psychedelics is the way to do that, if that gets you into that feeling state and you can use it therapeutically, then there's, there's definitely a potential avenue. I think what you're talking about with the illicit drugs is that what some people do in those cases is they do that to not feel, to numb themselves mm. out. And that's, a, that's kind of more of a, a finite process versus a more exploratory process. And I know that may sound like it's, it's kind of, uh, it's splitting hairs a little bit because, okay, what kind of drugs, but the function matters, what you're using it for matters. And I think that in most healing processes, at least emotional healing, you got to feel it at some point. Maybe you don't feel it. You do these like very basic mindless behavioral tasks, but you notice that you feel better from it. But then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Exercise makes me feel better. I feel that that high afterwards. Okay, so now I'm going to do it. I get it when you're talking about it, as opposed to someone saying like, oh, you know, do exercise. It'll make you feel better. It's like, what does that mean? I don't feel that. And so I feel like what you're talking about here is such a central, important therapeutic process. You have to feel things on a deeper level in order to make that kind of change, whatever the method. I, I love that. Again, within that one it wasn't a question. It was like it had three, at least three really fascinating parts for me, um, which is the first one is around intention, um, which I think you're so right. I think of many drugs, uh, experimentation, not maybe at the beginning, but often can be, end up being self-medication to dampen things down, to, to, to suppress a trauma or to enable people to function in a certain way. And this doesn't, this isn't for every drug illegal drug but i remember reading that great book um the book of the hungry ghosts by the therapist who set up a hotel in vancouver for homeless people and he he basically said all the heroin addicts were self-medicating they'd all suffered some kind of emotional or physical trauma um and he interestingly enough now i believe is taking people to 
work with indigenous shamans, work taking addicts to work with ayahuasca for addictions um, in Peru, I believe. So he came to that conclusion. So intent, I think, is exactly right. If you, but if you use these medicines with the intent of healing and of facing whatever comes up and comes out, it's a very different consciousness, and you have very different results as a result. The other part, emotionally re-experiencing. Yes, the the medicines make you feel it in a way that you don't just see it. I think, yeah, knowing is never enough. I think, you know, that was the real problem, I think, with Freudian therapy for me. And when when we teach the dance work, we're getting people moving, we're getting people breathing, and they, they'll often come up to us and go, why was I crying? Or, you know, why did I get so angry? Or... And all these emotions come out and all these memories come out. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. We would dance for days and days and days, weeks. Uh, The longest I did was a month every day, about six hours a day. And it really unwinds things in the psyche in a very interesting way. And as a creative person, it also makes then lyric writing become very easy because you're feeling things. So you just write down what you feel and the words just form with a potency and a connectedness. And the, the third bit I got from that was, I've been working with some of Joe, do you know a guy called Joe Dispenza? He wrote a book called You Are the Placebo, and it's a study of placebos. Um, and it's a wonderful book, actually, about the history of, of when Western medicine started to find placebos. He ended up developing these kind of almost self-hypnosis meditative techniques to get you into a state where you have to create the feeling in your body of you're going to change this now, whatever this pattern is that has you by the throat that's limiting your life. But you have to have an equivalent feeling that can be stronger than whatever the feeling was that shut you down in the first place. And if you can't get that, it won't make any difference. And so those techniques are really interesting, uh, I think, of re-feeling. When I, the best past life work I did, and I know that really probably takes psychology t- today into the really wacky zone uh, when I actually mention that, even mentioning it, they actually called it now a deep memory process. And, what, and it was formed by a Jungian analyst who kept regressing people and they kept popping out in describing other lives. Yeah, there, 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 there is not a, I mean, just to give you some context for that statement, you know, when, when Marsha Linehan came out with dialectical behavior therapy, which was based on Eastern philosophy and Buddhism <clears throat> in the seventies, I think maybe the early eighties, it was like, what on earth are you talking about? What is it that you're doing? And now I don't even know that you can write a grant without talking about mindfulness. I don't even know that you'll get funded for anything. It was the same thing with cognitive therapy where, you know, what you're going to, you're going to do what? You're just going to focus on the person's thoughts. How can you do that? You're not, you're not talking about their unconscious conflicts. That'll never work. And then cognitive therapy took over. So I, I definitely feel like I learned from that history. So when you say something like, oh, people are going to dismiss the, what you're talking about with past lives, I think, all right, do it. But you can almost guarantee that 30 years from now, we're going to be talking about it like it's the standard. (laughs) Isn't that the great thing about, 
you know, I remember when Sir Fred Hoyle first started about talking about, yes, there will be aliens out there and we will eventually meet them. And he was ridiculed and he lost all his reputation overnight. And, you know, and now we're at a place where they're kind of during COVID, they suddenly start showing all these UFO footage from fighter pilots and everybody doesn't bat an eyelid. Um, and it's like we've watched this, you know, global warming and, you know, all, all, all Gaia prophecy, you know, all the Gaia information from James Lovelock and science having to embrace quantum physics. You know, science before had been really the refuge of people looking for certainty. And suddenly they're in a land of quantum entanglement and Schrodinger's cat and total uncertainty and a world that has to, we have to embrace this, you know. Well, it's just just the idea that, you know, again, like when people say, well, I'm about science and it's like, and I I think that's wonderful. Like I, I like science too, as a dynamic process to inform decisions, but even science is almost entirely faith-based in the sense that I'm assuming that this little scientific experiment I do on a hundred people for a treatment outcome in which I show that my treatment is 20% better than this other treatment, that's faith that it's then going to translate to a given person. And, and that's not to, that's not to minimize it. I, I personally think that we should, you know, science should drive the discussion, but when people dismiss something as novel and, and at, because they're saying, well, it's not science. It's like, it's not scientific. It's again, it's getting back to that idea. It's the difference between what you're talking about is rock and theater. You know, it's like rock is, is being open to all that. Science should be about having an open and inquisitive dynamic mind and always wanting to learn more. Oh, that's interesting that the past lives thing. Tell me about that. I'm just kind of curious about that. You know, it takes so little to be curious rather than critical and yet time and time again we 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 criticize things that we don't understand at our own peril why there's there's no there's zero benefit for us to shut someone down before we've heard them talk mm, absolutely really interesting i won't go into the past life stuff but when i asked the jungian analyst you know we we were experiencing stories that were so powerfully emotional that you'd be weeping like a child or raging or go to battle and experiencing it in our body. I remember they gave me a broomstick and surrounded me by uh, uh, mattresses and I ripped the mattresses to pieces. I was in a battle. And, um, and so you're experiencing physically, emotionally, re-experiencing these, let's call them stories. It doesn't matter really. And I remember saying to him at the end, you know, are you sure? How do you know these are past lives and not just the imagination? And he said, after 20 years of working with people in this field, I don't know. I don't know that they're past lives. It could be imagination. But if it's imagination, we have to redefine what the word imagination means. Because they were finding they would like regress somebody who had had asthma all their lives and and I had the first-hand experience of this. The story of the woman was that she'd been buried alive in Mongolia. <laughs> and I was the one regressing this woman. And she was buried alive. And her and she had to re-experience it and then have a you then go into a you use the Tibetan model of going into the Bardo state and healing and et cetera, et cetera. And after that experience, she had no asthma again. 
That was it, gone. So it didn't matter if it was true or not. She had a healing from that experience. It was real to her. And that's one of the things that I definitely encourage everyone who's going into therapy to think about. Because before treatment control studies, the way that you figured something out was it was a within-person design. Now, you try it and see if it worked. You, you don't do it, see if things go back. And then you try it again and see if it works again. And then you know that that within you doing this thing tends to work. And again, I think it's wonderful to always think about, well, maybe let's start with the scientifically validated, if you will, empirically validated treatments. And if that works, that's great. But you don't know what's going to work for you. You don't know what's going to get you that feeling state. And I think that's why so many people turn to music. You know, let's all pay attention. Why is it that so many people feel quote unquote saved by music? Mm. You know, there's, there's something there. I don't know. I mean, you know, now there's evidence to suggest why, but for forever, right. music's, music's been healing us forever. And forever. It's not, it, ha it hasn't been part of conventional science or medicine. Every indigenous shaman I've met has songs has healing songs, has drums. Dancing is often a big part of it too. It's a language of healing and it, it crosses every culture. And, you know, Chris, every church, every religion has songs. Every football match has songs. I remember the first time I went to see Leeds United play and just that, holy shit, men singing like this. And it, it was, it's breathtaking. Um, and music is the one, really. You know, music is the one that they're using with Alzheimer's patients who suddenly come alive again when they play the music of their youth. And you see these kind of, these people who are shells and you see different parts of their brain light up when you play the music. So I'm a big believer in the healing power of music. I've, I've had some incredible experiences around that myself. I've had some whilst performing and some done a, a much more powerful ones from indigenous shamans than anything I've ever experienced myself performing. Um, I'm humbled when I, when I meet a medicine man who, who starts singing to me in a certain way where I can feel my DNA realigning. So I'm a big fan of that. Something else has been coming up in this conversation for me. I was lucky enough to have um, a liver disease for 10 years from 11 to 21 and not have it diagnosed. And I thought I was mad because the, there is a psychology that goes with jaundice that's not, not, not pleasant. It's really bitter. Um, you know, you can find it in, in Chaucer and anywhere in literature, a jaundice state of mind. And I thought I was mad and I thought I would end up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and then it was diagnosed when I was 21 and Western medicine had nothing for it. And the fact that Western medicine had nothing for it was, a, again, a, a changed my life because it forced me to go into <laughs> everything that was not Western. Um, and from, you know, I got into meditation. I got into Chinese herbs. I got into acupuncture. I got into rolfing. I got into Reiki and body work. I went looking everywhere because I had to because I was so sick. And... I learned so much breath work, colonics, <laughs> vegetarian diet for a long time, and everything 
helped and everything started to unwind me and make my health better and better. And, you know, I bless my illnesses. I, I, I often find that the people who have been really sick or have nearly died are the, or who have had cancer diagnosis, if they survive it, they say to you, this is, I started living when I got diagnosed with cancer. It's almost like that it's that thing you said about we're not very good at knowing what's good for us and doing it. Oh, I need to do exercise. I should exercise. But if you have it all taken away from you, you have a hunger for it at that point. Um, I had a point for two and a half years where I was really disabled and I was doing, com- I'm a dan- I love dancing. Dancing was my biggest passion in life. And I was in a neck brace for two and a half years. And so it, and nothing fixed it. I was going to have the bones fused. And eventually I found this bizarre healing <laughs> that I don't, I won't go into to add to my litany of listeners will think I'm, oh, he's completely mad. Um, but it, it was another thing that forced me into the fringes of healing. And it's, this has been my life journey is, you know, looking for and getting fed by these things that I don't know if I'd have gone looking for them if I hadn't been so desperate. And so I would invite anybody who is ill to welcome that illness and to say that as long as you believe there's somebody out there who can help you, if you have that level of belief, which I always did, then it becomes a blessing. It becomes a journey. It becomes a door opening, not a door closing. And that's been my blessing in my life is to have had a few major major illnesses and injuries that have forced me to go deeper i think that's the invitation go deeper well that is a beautiful sentiment to end on and tim i can't tell you how much i appreciate you sharing the story with us these are these are important things and you know your music's been important to people and i know that just hearing this conversation hopefully some people will take that extra step because of you sharing your journey. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Yeah, we're... (laughs) Thank you. Sweet. So there you have it. Tim Booth of James talking about how he copes with existential angst. And one of the most important takeaways that we can have in our own exploration of a fear of death is that there are many possible ways that we can cope. There are medications, therapies, thoughts, and behaviors that all may play a role in our unique exploration of and coping with our fears of death. And this can be an ongoing process in our life as we pursue our purpose. The key is to be open-minded to different options and see which approach works best for each of us and which makes us feel that we are living our best and most authentic life. I'd like to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for editing and producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.